Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. One of the things that has bedeviled aged care is that we've never put together a task force that considers these big, broad, structural questions. Governments of past have tried to just address particular policy problems, and that has led to a very fragmented bolt-on scheme. Welcome to another episode of Guardian Australia's Australian Politics Podcast. Today, we're joined in the podcave by the Minister for Aged Care and Sport, Annika Wells. Minister Wells has launched a task force to examine how to pay for improved aged care. So we'll be talking about the merits of more user pay and whether a levy to pay for better aged care is fair to different generations of Australians. We're also just a few weeks shy of major promises being implemented in aged care, including 24-7 nurses and a pay rise. Let's get into it. Welcome, Annika. Good morning. How are you? Now, I suspect a lot of listeners remember the Aged Care Royal Commission in general terms, uh, the title Neglect, and that it was an indictment on the quality of aged care, but may not remember what it said about funding. Why is this the great unanswered question of the Royal Commission? Because some of the recommendations of the Royal Commission, there were 148 in total, were really prescriptive about what should be done and at what time, and for how long, and by whom. And when it came to the two funding recommendations, the two commissioners differed on what should happen. So the Commissioner Briggs proposed a levy, uh, a universal levy to be paid by all taxpayers across the country for for aged care, but not hypothecated for aged care. Um, And Commissioner Begoni proposed uh, a 1% tax Uh, to go via the Productivity Commission to be considered there first, but for that tax to be hypothecated for aged care. Obviously, those are two very different proposals, so it wasn't a prescriptive path to follow like there there were in some other elements of the Royal Commission. Now, are people really stopping you in the supermarket asking to pay more for for their aged care? And can you explain to listeners what stops providers charging more under the current system? Absolutely. I get stopped at my grocery shop of choice, I won't name which one, about aged care. Not in the way that you're suggesting, Paul, but what prevents providers from charging more at the moment and at the risk of having the orchestral music start to play me off 30 seconds into an answer about how how the aged care system is currently funded. No, no, it's a long format. (laughs) As much detail as you want. Uh, There are limitations about what providers can charge for particular things at the moment. And the thing that providers would would tell you if if you ask them is that the hotelling and accommodation fee is, is 
set in a way that precludes them from charging more for higher services in a way that it isn't. If you look at New Zealand, just a couple of weeks ago, they've announced a very high-end aged care build that's going to be multi-stories, very, uh, for, for people, basically they say, um, for people of high wealth who don't want to sacrifice the quality of life that they're used to, they're going to be able to pay significant amounts of money to live in a very high-end aged care facility, retirement facility. Um, it'll be, I think, across the the different um, service levels. We don't have that in this country. We have uh, a very convoluted system, I say Byzantine a lot, that people find difficult to navigate and that does ask for contributions in different places across the system, but not in a uniform way or in a consistent way, which leaves definite patches of inequity um, that people find difficult to understand and then difficult to reconcile once they do understand. And last week you launched a task force to examine uh, this question and uh, you're the chair of it and uh, you, you already know that eight, a lot of aged care stakeholders, including providers, have been calling for a user pay system for some time. So do you have a... 20 years. <laughs> do you have a preliminary view about if that's where you'll end up? But I've been thinking about this for 12 months. We've just passed our 12-month anniversary in office and I remember my very first interview with The Guardian's Sarah Martin after becoming the aged care minister, she said, she said Royal Commission proposed a levy, are you going to introduce a levy? So this is something that we've been thinking about for 12 months. But ultimately I felt that such a significant change shouldn't be made by me as one person, one minister. It should be made by us and we should take everybody with us. So the the point of the task force is designed to capture all the different groups and people with a stake in how aged care is funded and to deliberate. Like I said, when talking about this last week, we had 22 reports into aged care before the Royal Commission, many of which weighed in on the funding question. We had the actual Royal Commission, which proposed two different recommendations to how to reform the funding system. Really the time for proposals and evidence, people have had 20 years to, to make that contribution. The time is now to deliberate on those contributions in the current environment, post-COVID, you know, um, with what we know about the, the economy and how that looks moving forward, and then to adjudicate what we should do. So that's why I think we can do it in six months. We can deliberate and adjudicate in six months. Now, on that aged care levy, uh, you didn't rule it out at the press club in, in, uh, last week, and it sort of prompted an interesting reaction. Um, people didn't seem upset that it was inconsistent with what Labor had said before the election. They were more worried from an intergenerational equity perspective that, you know, is it fair for Gen Xs, Millennials and Gen Zs to be paying for boomers, given that on average, not everyone, but on average, uh, the, the boomers have more wealth. Mm. Can you understand why other generations might be a bit stroppy about the, the prospect of higher taxes? I'd point you to my first speech in the parliament where I made intergenerational inequality a big focus and um, aim of mine to contribute to easing that problem with my time in the parliament. In my first speech, I talked about being a millennial a member of parliament at the time, less than 10% of the parliament were born after 1980. And I made the point that in 2019, when I was elected and making my first speech, 
it was the first year that there were more Australians born after 1980 than before 1980. And it was the first year, 2019, that there were more Australians born after 1980 in the workforce than um, those born before 1980. That's a significant shift in our population. And yet less than 10% of the parliament were made up of people born after 1980. And I said that those generations deserved a seat at the table and I was going to make my contribution. So that's my perspective that I'm bringing. And that's why what I said earlier, I think, stands. It shouldn't be up to one person to make this decision. I'm part of a responsible government. We're grown-ups in the room. We will deliberate on recommendations that have been made by a Royal Commission. It's the highest body in the land when it comes to public policy and review. But I also made the point of putting a young economist who has made his career's focus so far, intergenerational inequality, a member of the task force, so that he can speak to the intergenerational elements of the different proposals and how we can make a contribution to addressing some of that, or I guess the task force has the choice of making a contribution to addressing that if they decide to do so upon deliberating all the different options before them. Would an aged care levy be means-tested like the Medicare levy surcharge? I think that's probably a, a hypothetical for the task force to consider. At the moment, I think there are a huge amount of options that the there's a huge amount of levers I think you could pull to answer the fundamental question of the task force, which is how do we get more money into a system that is crying out for more money? It's a huge question. And like I said last week, I think our guiding principles on that, that's the question we've got to answer. The guiding principles should be two. One, building a better system with better clarity to get over this kind of impenetrable Byzantine system and building a system with better care at the heart of it. Because an example I'd make is that, like I said earlier, there are places in the aged care system where people contribute already. But I've heard of examples at outside my you know, local supermarket where people have been offered by a home care package, well, you can make a contribution to your package or you can trade away the nursing element of the package and then you won't have to pay a contribution. Mm. That's what exists currently. That's not what we want. What we want is for care to be the primary focus and basis of any aged care system and for people to be able to add elements that suit their particular circumstances and means um, from that. We don't want people to feel like they need to trade away nursing because they can't or won't make a contribution to a home care package because, one, that's not a good system, and two, aged care is at the end of the day one of three tranches of our healthcare system, primary care, acute care, aged care, and where there are failures in aged care, it puts additional pressure on our primary and acute care systems. It's all connected. So, we need to think about that, I think, because the system has been built and bolted on across decades and this is a real opportunity for us to reform it in a way that makes sense and sets us up for a whole generation beginning to enter the system in a few years. You said on Sunday this is a separate question to uh, what to do about stage three income tax cuts, but it is fair to observe that if, if we went towards an aged care levy that the government would be giving income tax cuts with one hand and, and taking away with the other via a levy. How, how would you respond to that, that slightly cynical view? Yes, I think even David Spears said it was a cheeky question. Um, 
it's it's cart before the horse because the task force needs to, like I said on Sunday, we are not working backwards from a number that we are trying to secure for a budget purpose. The question to answer is, how do we get more money into a system crying out for more money? And my two principles are, how do we do that in a way that gives people better care and gives people better clarity? So we will work through the different, I guess, options that have been proposed in the past 20 years. And I think that the different members of the task force, if you look at you know, some, some of these people are economists, some, some of these people are academics with particular learning in gerontology and ageing, some of these people are um, advocates for different types of people who use aged care, everyone's going to bring their own focus. And that's the whole point of bringing together a task force to make these deliberations together with all of that considered. Something I've noticed, not just in aged care, but in the care economy broadly, um, when I came to be a minister in the government with carriage of some of the elements of the care economy, is that these things are really siloed across the groaning strains of the federal government machinery, even where we all face very similar and pressing issues. So workforce shortages is an issue for the entire care economy, but the way that government is set up, everyone needs to deal with those separately. And we're trying to address some of that. You would have seen with the Prime Minister's Care Economy Task Force and um, the draft strategy that came out recently. But I think that's one of the things that has bedeviled aged care is that we've never put together a task force that considers these big, broad, structural questions. Governments of past have tried to just address particular policy problems, and that has led to a very fragmented bolt-on scheme. Hmm. So is it a lot broader than just the funding question then? It's going to reimagine the whole model, the whole suite of options about what aged care sh should look like then? No. If you look at the terms of reference, it is it is very much designed to address the question of how we put more money into a system crying out for more money. How do we reform funding in a way that makes it sustainable, both for taxpayers and for users of the system? How do we make it equitable for both taxpayers and users of the system? And then, like I've said, I'm really interested in how do we create policy settings that actually encourage innovation and excellence in a sector where the Royal Commission said for too long, and particularly the previous government, was content to do, well, with getting away with as little as possible in the area because their focus was elsewhere. That's not me. That's what the Royal Commission said. So I really want to create a seismic shift in aged care and, and try and gear the system. Firstly, like I said at my press club address, just try and triage it out of the crisis that it's been in, but now try and face the future and gear it for a system that encourages innovation and excellence. There are people out there doing really innovative things and there are people out there providing excellent care but they really are doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. There's no policy settings that encourage that. And if we're going to reform the funding system, I just wanted to make sure that there was a term of reference in there that made us consider um, how do we get other elements, other investment, aggregated models? Is there a way for that to play a role that gets more money into a system, but also helps us lift the standard of care? Last one on funding, uh, just looking around the parliament, you've got Peter Dutton in his budget reply signalling that he might be up for more user pay. You've got the Greens, you know, sort of hammering the government to reform stage three tax cuts to pay for this and everything else. You know, the task force can design an ideal solution, but is 
is what comes out at the end going to be dictated by what's politically possible rather than rather than your your <laughs> your preference and your deliberations? Well, I like you, I was heartened by Peter Dutton, the leader of the opposition's contribution in his budget reply, saying that he saw aged care as a priority and he wanted to work constructively with us, um, and I look forward to to doing that. I was less heartened by the shadow aged care minister running around last week. Um, calling the suggestion of or the proposal of a levy easy, lazy policy. I mean, I think it's a pretty pretty big swing to call the Royal Commissioners lazy. This is their recommendation. They interviewed 641 witnesses across the course of the Royal Commission. It's a pretty big swing to call their recommendation lazy. But that is her right. And, and there were other members of the opposition running around last week sort of starting a, a scare campaign about a new tax. Like I've said, we are not advocating any particular proposal, but I think if you've got a Royal Commission or if you've had a Royal Commission into aged care, if that Royal Commission has spoken particularly on aged care funding in two recommendations and you've set up a task force to reform the aged care funding system, it would be disrespectful not to at least consider those two recommendations as part of all of the other funding proposals that come forward. I think that would be wild, but I guess Senator Russian and I will disagree. Now, at the National Press Club last week, you revealed financial viability of providers is improving with the proportion that are making a loss falling from 66 to 54%. How much can you attribute that to, to policy changes? Um, directly, because we have a baseline we introduced, well, for your listeners who don't track aged care policy day to day, I forgive you, but welcome aboard. <laughs> we have more than 100 reform projects on the go at the moment since we took office 12 months ago. One of the things that we did was introduce quarterly financial reporting. Um, and that's actually important for the tracking of 24-7 as well, which I'm sure you'll ask me about later. But we have a July to September quarter, which tells us where things were at before we introduced our um, funding reform, which was the ANAC funding model, which commenced on 1 October. And what we could reveal last week was the September to December quarter, which is the first quarter with the new funding model. That had a 10% uplift in funding for residents per bed per day. And that funding model was designed to actually address the cost of what your care looks like as an individual. So, if you are someone who has dementia and lives in my electorate of Lily in the suburbs of the north side of Brisbane, the cost of your care looks very different to if you are someone who is still very mobile but living in Longreach in Queensland. So September to December shows, like you say, an uptick in the financial viability of providers. The number of people in financial distress or making a loss, I should say making a loss, dropped from 66% down to 54%. And our early numbers about the next quarter coming demonstrate that will drop further. So to me, that is, I like to measure because then you know how you're actually going. And this is just not something that's ever been done in aged care before. So to me, we are tracking well, and that doesn't account for the additional funding that we put through in the budget, which is now four weeks old, $36 billion all up, but including um, $11.3 billion towards, you know, a pay rise for aged care workers. This is significant money going into the system to address a crisis. And the task force is about how do we make this system sustainable post-crisis. 
We're weeks shy of the start of the 24-7 uh, nurses in aged care. What, what sort of reasons are the providers who think they're not able to meet this requirement giving for that and what alternatives are they proposing? So the requirement is if you are not going to reach 24-7 nursing by 1 July, you need to satisfy the aged care commissioner, Janet Anderson, that you have alternative care arrangements in place so that residents will still receive access to nursing where required, even if you can't have a 24-7 nurse on site. So you've got to have a valid reason for not doing it and you've got to have an alternative care arrangement. And there are some innovative stuff that people are devising there. For example, I'm thinking that someone's created an arrangement with their hospital who um, is situated across the road, that they'll have essentially an on-call arrangement with nurses in the hospital where required from 1 July or, or if they don't already and they will keep that arrangement in place until they can recruit the nurses to be able to staff nursing 24-7 in their particular facility. Um, Those are good things. And what I have been working with the commissioner on is trying to encourage people to come forward and work with us on how those alternative care arrangements could look, give them ideas that other people are using in different parts of the country, share the knowledge, so that we have as high a standard of care, as many nurses working as many hours for as many residents as possible come 1 July. The Australian uh, on Thursday reported that Victoria's nurse-to-patient ratios are causing uh, beds to close. Is that a dilemma that you'll have with the federal policy as well? And how do you ensure that 24-7 nursing adds to care rather than detracting from it? Absolutely not. Closures are, I mean, closures have been in the, the headlines for the past six or so weeks and the opposition has sought to make some political hay for themselves out of aged care closures, which I think is despicable given the level of distress that it causes both people who are in aged care and people who have loved ones in aged care. The reality is that in the past two years, past two financial years, there have been 76 closures of aged care homes, 36 in our first year of the Albanese government and 40 in the final year of the Morrison government, 76 across two financial years. Now, I could have spent or dedicated some time in the past six weeks running around arguing that the 40 closures that occurred on their watch was due perhaps to the $2.5 billion funding cut that they made to aged care in 2018, but I haven't done that. I feel you might be doing that now. In a- <laughs> I'm choosing not to do that. I have other things that I choose to prioritise with my time. However, they have, the opposition has sought to run around arguing that the 36 closures in our first year is due to our funding or to due to our aged care reforms to lift the standard of care. It's absolute codswallop and, like I said, a despicable scare campaign causing unnecessary distress. If that was the case... How do they explain the 40 closures on their watch? Because the 40 homes that closed in the last financial year of their government didn't have a crystal ball and couldn't divinely foresee that the Albanese Labor government was going to ride into town and lift the standards required of aged care homes in this country. And the other thing I would say of closures is that across the nine years of the Morrison government, they ended up with less aged care homes in this country than what they started with. There was a net loss of aged care homes in this country after nine years of their watch. Mm. And they did nothing about it and they certainly didn't concern themselves with it in question time or anywhere else. So for them now to try and make a point that 
closures are somehow related to lifting the standard of care in this country is both wrong because it doesn't speak to any of the elements that would have caused closures under their watch. And also, let's just be grown-ups here, aged care closures are nuanced things. They happen for a lot of reasons. Primarily, they happen because there is a consolidation of beds across providers that might have, say, eight, nine facilities. Occupancy is low, lower across the country post-COVID. People don't want to go into residential aged care. They want to stay at home. So occupancy as a percentage is lower nationally. And where there is stock that is that two-bed or four-bed cinder block facility without en-suites, mm. providers are making a consolidation, closing that particular sort of outdated facility and opening or focusing their efforts on more modern facilities. People want an ensuite, but that is such a big element of aged care closures. People don't want to leave home and if they have to leave home, they don't want to move into a bedroom that doesn't have an ensuite that they share with a stranger. That's totally reasonable. Mm. And we should allow the system to accommodate that. And like I said about one of the terms of reference of the task force, I want to make sure that there are policy settings that encourage providers to have innovative and excellent models of care modern facilities. And at the moment, what they tell me is that there's just not money for capital. So we've got to get more money into a system that's crying out for more money. Last one on aged care. There are big workforce issues in the sector. There's been a labour agreement to bring more people in from overseas. There's also the 15% work value uh, pay rise coming in from 1 July funded in the budget. How big an impact will, will they have at boosting the workforce? It's a great question. It speaks to the huge amount of change in aged care at the moment. We've made some really big, important and financially big decisions. We've legislated them. We're, we're pushing them through. We're working with providers and I hate the word consumers, but consumers is the word the sector uses, people who use aged care, to get it done. Like you say, we've got a bunch of things coming in 1 July and we need time for this to wash through the system. The other one I'd point to you to is labour agreements, which we just uh, delivered as a policy in the weeks around budget. The first one got signed in Perth. It was for 550 workers across five years, which is a huge amount. So we will have more workers coming to aged care via labour agreements. We will have more workers coming back to aged care via the pay rise, because a lot of people said they love the work, but they just couldn't afford to do it. Seek tells us that there has been a 30% increase in clicks and applications to aged care nursing and aged care personal care worker positions this year. That tells us that what we're doing is working and that people think we're turning aged care around and they want to come and work in the industry. So we've got to allow for all of this to wash through the system, which is why I say it's really important that we made these reforms. It's really important we legislated these reforms. It was a real clear signpost to the system, to the sector about where we're going. If we won't make 24 nursing 1 July, we'll still have many, many more nurses performing many, many more hours of care than we would have had we not done it. Hmm. And we will just work with everybody to get there as soon as we can. I mean, workforce shortages are a, are a global dilemma for rich countries with ageing populations. It's, it's the same the world over. 
I've got a few in your capacity as Minister for Sport. Uh, why, why is the Commonwealth guaranteeing funding for the Brisbane Olympics in 2032 and not the Victorian Commonwealth Games in 2026? <laughs> Brisbane Olympics and Paralympics in 2032. That's not the case. We are still working through with the Victorian government their proposal for federal support. The difference here really is that Brisbane won the bid 11 years out from hosting the bid. That's a record amount of preparatory time. And if you look at our bid documents for the Brisbane 2032 bid, what the IOC requires by way of detail and proposal is is, is hugely detailed. Whereas the Victoria bid for the Com Games, we only won that bid in April last year and there was less detail required of a successful bid. So Victoria is still putting together essentially all the, the detail required to try and secure federal support and we'll continue to work with them on that. Okay, so hope still, they just got to fill in the, the detail. Uh, and lastly, on the Women's World Cup, um, the organisers released a document called Legacy 23, which includes investment from the federal government for participation, performance and, and facilities. What, what do you think the legacy uh, of the World Cup will be? And are there targets for what, you know, f- federal uh, investment in that looks like and, and can achieve? Sure, but the federal investment in legacy particularly for the Women's World Cup is $34 million. For me, I really wanted to make the focus of that participation pathways and pipeline for women and girls. So some of the programs within that um, $34 million envelope is money for the mini roos, obviously the home of the Matildas is part of that, and programs for children of migrants and refugees to be able to participate in soccer or football, round ball, for free in their local suburbs because we don't want cost. Um, It's just such a great way to welcome a new family to the community is to get them involved in local sport. So for me, I know that Football Australia has particular targets. They're trying to meet about 50-50 participation and I I support that. But I hope that Australians see this. It's the third biggest event in the world. It's absolutely massive. It's the first time it's ever come to the Southern Hemisphere. This is an enormous deal. And I think from a sportsman's perspective, no other code has the reach of the global game. What I find when I go to round ball football matches is the international element. And it's something that you can talk to about someone you've never met with nothing in common from Ghana. You can talk about round ball and the sport diplomacy opportunities off round ball football are truly enormous. And we're so good. Like the Matildas are so good. You know, it's, it's such a good, I mean, the Matildas, I think, espouse every value you'd hope for in a national sporting team. And as someone who wants part of my contribution as the sports minister to be about how do we reform a system so that women's sport seats equally with men's sport. It's not sort of a bolt-on, it's not um, one-off funding initiatives, it sits equal, equally. I think this is our best opportunity to demonstrate why that should always have been the case, but if it couldn't have always been the case, why it should be the case moving forward. That's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us, Minister Wells. Good to be with you. This episode was produced by Joe Koning. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. 
We'll be back next week for another episode of Australian Politics. Thanks for joining us. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.